This morning, I want to begin with a question about the Bible, ironically, that I'm just giving you. Why do we make such a big deal about the Bible? When you come to church, you have to bring your Bible, or I give you a Bible to follow along with. Uh, We read the Bible here. We talk about the Bible. We're always preaching about the Bible. We're we're praying uh, to God about things he's told us in the Bible. Some of your parents gave you a Bible. Uh, you know, they hope that you would study your Bible, maybe, maybe even at your school. You have a whole class that's all about the Bible. Bible, Bible, Bible. I just said Bible like 90 times. Why do we make such a big deal about the Bible? Is it really that important? We teach our little kids that song, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the... See, you all know it. All knew it. Now that song's in your head. You're welcome. So here in junior high, we try to point you to the truth of God's word. Far more than anything else, we talk about the Bible. When you go to high school, it'll be more of the same. In fact, really, if you're at a good church, no matter how old you are, the Bible should be the focus. It should be the the book for you. So why is the Bible such a big deal? The answer is because really there's no other book like it. There's no other book like it. There's no other book that can do what the Bible can do. It can boast of things that no other book can compete with. In Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, David writes this about the word of God. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Those are phrases for the word of God. And David there says about the Bible, it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's true. And about the Bible, David says this, it gives life to the soul who listens It gives wisdom to the one who puts it into practice. It gives joy to the heart without bias. It gives light to the eyes to no longer live in darkness, to no longer live in a lie, but to live in the light of God's glory and goodness and to live in the light of his truth. So no other book can do that. No other book can boast of that. No other book can give wisdom, joy, light, and especially life. No other book is perfect like the Word of God. And to help the haters and the doubters, God also wants us to know that His Word proves true. In the psalm right before this one, Psalm 18, David writes, This God, His way is perfect, and the Word of the Lord proves true. And that's going to be something we're going to talk about this morning. God's word, it doesn't just talk a big game. God shows us through his word over and over how it proves true, how his word always proves true. What God says will happen, well, it happens. 
And he wants us to know through his word that it proves true. It always has. God's word has a perfect record and his word always will prove true. And that's going to be our big idea this morning. We're going to borrow it from David as we get back into 1 Kings. But it's, this truth is on display. The word of the Lord proves true. The word of the Lord proves true. And in other words, the Bible is important and it should be important to you. Because only God's word, only the Bible proves true. Only God's word is perfect and right and trustworthy. All that to say, we would be hugely wasting our time to dedicate our days to any other book. It would be a giant waste of time to study and understand any other book besides this one. We emphasize the Bible because it alone is worthy of our time, worthy of our attention. God's word alone, worthy of our thoughts and our questions and our effort to understand what God wants us to know. Bible is very important. This morning, as we return to 1 Kings, and that's where we're going to be. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Kings, and we'll be in chapter 12. And here, we're going to start kind of a new section, and I love that God begins this section with a reminder that His Word proves true, despite stupidity and despite People doing dumb things and pride and sin, God's word still comes to pass. It still proves true. And that's a truth that's meant to bring great comfort to believers, to Christians. We know his word comes to pass. That's a truth that reminds us that nothing can stop God's plans and purposes. That's really comforting. That's really helpful, especially when things look as chaotic as they do. This morning, we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 43, just the last verse, and then work our way into chapter 12. Follow along with me as we try to figure out why our big idea is true, why the word of the Lord proves true. Here we go. 1 Kings 11, verse 43. And Solomon slept with his fathers, that means he died, and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you'll be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him. 
And he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you should speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus should you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Sounds cool. It's not. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying exactly, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The other day, our family was blessed by Leah's parents, and they took us to the mouse house, to Disneyland, and we had a great time. And I think our trip was greatly enhanced by that Disneyland park app on your phone. Very helpful. If you don't have it, you should get it ever go, just helps you know all kinds of great information. How long you're going to wait for a ride. Uh, If a ride is temporarily closed, where's the nearest turkey leg? Stuff like that that you need to know. But probably the most helpful is it's just a map that lets you know where you are. Probably the most crucial bit of information. You get to know where you are and what's going on and and what's around you. And sometimes I feel like we need that when it comes to the Bible, especially when we're in a section like this where the names are less familiar and what's going on to us feels like we've have just completely left the planet. Uh, Where are we? We need that for the Bible. And here in 1 Kings, Gosh, it would be so easy to feel lost. And so let me just kind of help with that quick. Where are we? What's going on? Who are these people? And I'm actually going to take you all the way back to Genesis and do a quick recap of how we got here. Okay, so if this is new to you, I just want you to understand what's going on. Back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Adam and Eve sin and They get kicked out of that garden, and Adam and Eve have kids who have kids who have even more kids, and they spread out over the earth, and there's lots of people, but the problem is is they're very wicked. They're really evil. And so God, in his judgment, decides to send a flood to wipe them off the face of the earth. God, through that flood, though, saved three people, or uh, saved eight people through Noah and his three sons and their wives. And they survived the flood and get out, and they have kids who have kids who have more kids, just like Adam and Eve. And they're supposed to spread out over the earth, but they don't. 
to kind of congregate in one place and decide to build a big tower and make their name great. And there at that tower of Babel, God confuses their language. He messed up all their language so that they can no longer understand each other. And they're forced to spread out and split up. From there, we meet a man named Abraham, whom God made a special promise to. And he said to Abraham that he would be the father of his people, that through him would come this great nation that God had chosen, that God wanted to be his people, and they would have a land, and they'd have rest, and God would be their God. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, who's kind of a rascal at first, but he figures it out, and God changes his name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and those sons and that big family, they eventually find themselves in the land of Egypt to survive a big famine. That's basically the book of Genesis. They're there, and it's good at first. Here comes the book of Exodus. Now there's a new Pharaoh in town. The Pharaoh that loved Joseph and Israel and his kids died, and a new leader says, I don't know these people, and there's a lot of them. Let's make them our slaves, and that's exactly what happens. Now God's people are slaves in Egypt, And they cry out to God for help. And so God sends a man named Moses to get them out of there. Moses delivers God's people to a land that God had promised Abraham many years before. When they get there, again, things are kind of good at first. But then they turn south pretty quickly. In their land, God's people are sinful and God punishes them with the enemies around them and they begin to be delivered over to their enemy, but God's faithful to keep them alive and faithful to deliver them. But it's sad because now God's people are living like they don't really know who God is. They're living like they don't really know that they're God's people. And that gets you all the way through the book of Joshua. First Samuel and Judges kind of show us that God's people are in a, a bad spot. For Samuel, God raises up a prophet to get God's people back where they belong with God. And that was Samuel's whole job. He was going to help God's people figure out who God was uh, again. And so God, through that prophet, does a great work. The problem is God's people, they don't really like Samuel, and they don't really want God to be their king at all. They want a human king. And so God gives them what they ask for. They get a king named Saul, and he's tall and dark and handsome, but that's about all he could do. He was actually a lousy king. He's not the kind of king that God's people need. And so instead of letting the people choose a new king, God says, I'll choose a king. And he chooses David. King David was awesome and he's godly and he's heroic and he's brave and he represents God and God's king very, very well. God promised David that there would always be someone in his line to sit on the throne, someone from his line to be king. And it seemed like David would be the perfect king seemed like David would, would, would be the kind of king that God's people really needed. But eventually, David fails too. He can't lead God's people perfectly. 
He sins, he's flawed, he's not worthy to be God's king. And so Solomon, David's son, takes his place. And we're getting closer to where we're at here. Solomon was David's son. He gets to be king. And God came to him in kind of an Aladdin-type moment and says, ask whatever you want and I'll grant your request. Solomon doesn't ask to be taller or to be rich or to be famous. He asks for wisdom. And so God grants his request and Solomon becomes the wisest king ever. And he also gets riches and fame to go with it because he didn't ask for it. And Solomon puts that wisdom to work. And under that wise brain of his, the kingdom of God grows. It gets bigger and it gets stronger They have a place to worship God in the temple. They have money coming in. They're building this impressive little nation. Solomon, we learned last week, he sins too. In chapter 11 of 1 Kings, what started off so well, what had such promise, it all came crashing down. Solomon's heart was turned away from following God to following false gods instead. So Solomon's can't be this king either. What will God do now? Well, last week, God sent a prophet to Jeroboam, who, by the way, is not one of Solomon's sons, which is a problem because the king is supposed to be in David's line. David to Solomon to Solomon's son. Jeroboam's not a son. He's an administrator. And so God told him he'd split the kingdom and he'd give this Jeroboam 10 of the 12 tribes. It was a serious prophecy, so serious and threatening that Jeroboam had to split town for a little bit. He's hiding out in Egypt because he's worried that Solomon will kill him. And he stays away until he hears of Solomon's death. Now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, sorry about all the Boams, but that's just where we're at. Uh, Rehoboam now takes the throne and that gets us to where we are at here in 1 Kings 12. Despite foolish decisions and unhelpful friends, God is still in control. His word will prove true. And I want to call this first section God's plot twist. It's the first 15 verses, God's plot twist. Verse 1, here's this son of Solomon, Rehoboam. He goes to Shechem to get his crown. And hearing of Solomon's death, Jeroboam feels like now it's safe for him to come out of hiding. And so he's going to join this coronation as well. He's going to attend the party. And Jeroboam, along with all of God's people, they want Rehoboam to be king, but they need him to listen. They need him to hear that his dad was a little too harsh. So they ask for a little relief, lighten this burden, you know, that your father gave us. It was too much work. If you just will expect a little less from us, we'll serve you. Verse 4. And almost appearing wise for a second, he asks for time and he wants to get counsel from the wise men who were around his dad. Good move. He asks them what they think and what he should do. And they tell him, verse 7, hey, look, this isn't a bad idea. If you just take it easy on them today, ease their minds, kind of settle their complaints here, and you're going to win their affections for the long haul. They say, these guys will serve you forever If you just come in with a little gentle spirit here, seems like good advice. But verse 8, we don't get much time before we realize that what Rehoboam's thinking. 
Counsel received and counsel immediately rejected. He's not interested. Rehoboam goes to his his homies here, the boys he grew up with. Notice how he includes the we there in verse 9. What should we answer this people? That's not how he talked to his dad's friends. So it's not hard to see who the new king sort of aligns himself here with. And the boys have a slightly different approach. They give the king, verse 10 and 11, some different advice. If I were you, I would tell them your dad was nothing. I would tell them that, you know, if they thought he was bad, they haven't seen anything yet. Tell them you're going to make their work harder. Tell them you're going to make their judgment worse. Verse 13 and 14 kind of report to us that Rehoboam follows their advice to the letter. We don't really get to the reaction yet, but we know this is going to be a problem. So how does this political kind of disaster, how does it remind us that God's word proves true? Well, if that's all we had, I think we would maybe get this wrong. We would start to make a case that the wisdom of the godlier and older, more experienced people needs to be listened to. A lot of people want to make a sermon there about the, the, the wisdom of wise counsel. Or we could talk about maybe the foolishness of the counsel of his peers. It's a good life lesson. There's some proverbs on that. Peers don't often know any more than you do. So it's kind of silly to ask them for advice. But here's the, the best part. Verse 15 doesn't let us do any of that. So the king, it says, did not listen to the people for it was a twist or a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. All of it is a twist. All of it is a circumstance that's completely under God's control. All of this was about what God had already said would happen in chapter 11, verse 31 to 39. That's what that was all about. Ahijah, that prophet, had spoken for God. He said this would happen. He told Jeroboam, this is what's going to happen. God will bring this to pass. You can count on it. And here now it's just becoming a reality. Solomon's son, in his foolishness, He wants to do this. That's probably helpful to say. God's not like moving his mouth like a puppet. He wants to say this. He wants to react this way and and do this. He chose the counsel that he thought was best. It's just that we get a sneak peek of behind the scenes and we, we understand all of this is part of God's plan. It's under the sovereign plan of God. We know the people aren't going to be happy, but... God, despite Rehoboam's stupidity here, reminds us that he's in complete control. Of course, what's about to happen is very sad. It's nothing to celebrate, but it also should not be surprising. God said this would happen, and God's word always proves true. God isn't surprised by it. He isn't undone by Rehoboam's foolishness. He's not undone by the unwise choice to listen to those friends who were probably just amped that their bro is the new king 
You know, they're, they're acting foolishly and prideful, arrogant, often foolish people. They have a way of making our world so much more complicated and troubled and, to be honest, a sad place to be sometimes. But we can learn as well that God is still in control. God's promise is still in control, and he tells us he's in charge, he's ruling He's moving our history precisely where he wants it to go. God's not undone by what's happening in our culture. He's not undone by what's happening. The things that catch us off guard don't catch him by surprise at all. The powerful of our world, as troubling as they are, They're all in the plot twist or the turn of affairs completely under the steady hand of God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Just a little, God just does what he wants with it. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God's not caught off guard. His word still proves true. Let's look at this second section here, uh, verses 16 to 20, and we'll call it God's promise recalled. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, well, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and they made him king over all Israel. There were none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Uh, Rehoboam decides he needs to back up his strong statement. He has no choice but to flex a little bit. And so he sends this enforcer named Adoram. And and hoping to impose some forced labor, Rehoboam's kind of, he's trying to put his money where his mouth is. He's trying to show that he means business. Unfortunately for Adoram, he doesn't exactly get a welcome to the neighborhood kind of reception. They stone him. They kill him fast. And just as fast, Rehoboam's quickly gone. Verse 20 Hearing that Jeroboam has returned, the people decide, let's make him the king. And there we have the saddest news, this kingdom is divided. Within this section, though, we hear some unlikely opposition. Things that we never thought to expect are here in our text. Israel uh, against or outside of the house of David. That should sound like nails on a chalkboard. Like, what? That's not good. This is bad. 
David mentioned, I count at least five times, verse 16, the people wonder what portion they have in David. They mention the house of Jesse or the son of Jesse. Take care of your own house, David. Verse 19, the author chimes in. He mentions them being against the house of David there. And again in verse 20, those references are meant to Notice they skip Solomon and go back to David. They're meant to remind us of 2 Samuel chapter 7. They're meant to take us back to that great promise that God made with David, that there would be someone on his throne forever. That's what's here. And Israel's supposed to be with with, the king. He's supposed to be aligned with that king through the house of David. And it should sound so weird to hear those statements. They're supposed to be united. They're Israel and the king of the house of David. They're supposed to be overjoyed at the mention of David and his house and God's promise. But because of Rehoboam, things have changed for the worse. Now they're like, we don't even know who you are. We have no inheritance with you. We have no portion with you. We're done with you. We're out What a mess for God's people here. You know, we're so blessed today to not have to wait and wonder how all this works out. Not like God's people who first read this. We have the rest of the Bible that tells us that Jesus is that descendant of David, that he is that fulfillment that God promised in 2 Samuel 7. We have that joy. We have that relief to to have that answer We know that Jesus sits on the throne forever, but we're reminded as we read this that, man, people can really mess stuff up. God's word did come true. It did prove true, but it's so messy along the way. And I want you to to grasp that. Rehoboam couldn't stop God's promise, God's word. He He couldn't put an end to what God had said or undo it, but... He could certainly drag that promise through the mud and drag it through the mud. He did. This son of David could have been like his father. He he could have been better. He could have been this great example, but that's far from the reality. And so the people are just left wondering what happened here? What happened to that promise that God made to your grandfather? Why are you the worst? Folly has tarnished, it stained God's wonderful promise. It didn't ruin it, it didn't stop it, but it certainly stained it. Feels less joyful here than it's meant to. And quickly, what could have helped Rehoboam? Last section, just a few verses, gives us a clue. We'll call it God's prophet obeyed. Verses 21 to 24, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah And the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home. Listen, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again 
according to the word of the Lord. Rehoboam was ticked that they killed his enforcer, and so he wants to double down and go get 180,000 warriors and probably wipe that little town off the map. But God has other plans, and he shuts it down quick. And just to get to the end, verse 24, it's kind of amazing that the people listened to the word of the Lord. They heard it, and they obeyed it. They didn't try to manipulate it. They didn't try to ignore it or make excuses. God reminds this foolish king and these foolish people that, you know, that he is in control. All this is his doing. This thing is from him and they need to stop. And thankfully, they listen. What a great lesson for us. Instead of digging ourselves deeper when trial and trouble hit, when those consequences for sin come, instead of trying to find that sort of band-aid fix for that problem, what if instead we just admit that the situation is completely under God's control and despite the circumstances, listen to the word of God? What if blaming, instead of blaming God for your circumstances, you just listen to his word? Instead of running from God, you listen to his word that tells you he loves you and he died for you and he wants to save you and he wants you to be in his kingdom. God's word proves true and it tells us that there are consequences for sin, even for the believer. But those consequences, they can't undo God's promises. They can't undo the salvation that's yours if you are truly in Christ. They can't undo God's promise. Listen to this great sentence by one of my favorite preachers on this section. And we'll close with this. Most believers know that sometimes their choices, their folly, their bullheadedness, or their hard-heartedness have landed them in a network of circumstances they simply cannot undo. There are irreversible consequences that can't be righted. All you can do is listen to the word of God and go on living in his kingdom as grace enables you to do so. The word of God always proves true. Father, thank you for your word this morning. A great reminder in this narrative of how your word always proves true. Father, thank you that we can learn such valuable lessons, even now, even at a young age, Lord, to know that despite what's going on, your promises can't be stopped. What you've said will happen, will happen. And God, we can be comforted in the most troubling times. We know that you're in control of our circumstances from the big picture to the little details. God, you are in control And that is incredibly comforting. God, we are thankful to know that your word is powerful and we're thankful to know that your word is true and right. God, I pray for these young people that they would see their need for you, how you've communicated to us through your word to help us see our need for salvation and the judgment that's ours if we reject it. And God, your word always proves true. Lord, I pray that we would heed that warning, those 
young people here this morning who don't know you, Father, I pray that they would take their soul and their need for salvation seriously. God, and for those who have put their faith in you and trust you as Lord and Savior, God, bring them joy and delight knowing that the promises you've made them will come true. God, help us to be quick to run to your word. Help us to love it and long for it. Lord, to truly cherish it as the treasure it is. Be with us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.